Welcome to the Books and Bites podcast. Each month, we bring you book recommendations and discuss the bites and beverages to pair with them. I'm Carrie Green, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Melissa Colston and Michael Cunningham. Hello. Hello. So today we're talking about books that have been on our to-be-read or TBR piles for far too long. So why do you guys think books tend to stay on your TBR piles? Do you have books that have just been on for a while? Yes, I have so many that have been on there for several years now. I think part of it is where... You know, you see the new releases, and you like, you want to read that now, and they just get keep, keep getting pushed to the bottom and further, further down. Mm-hmm. That's what happens to me. Mm-hmm. How about you, Melissa? I think for me, sort of like my my concept of my own TBR has sort of come about since I started using Goodreads, just because that's like the easiest way for me to keep track of things now. Um, so I will add things to my to be read shelf on Goodreads, and then it doesn't really function as a realistic <laughs> expectation of reading. It's more just like, oh, that looks cool. I don't want to forget about it because I'm gonna forget about it mm-hmm. like five minutes later. Um, so it kind of becomes like I do this on Hoopla, where I'll browse a bunch all at once and favorite a bunch of them, and then when I'm in the mood for a new book. I can go back and see all of the things that I've already pre-screened for myself. Um, yeah, I so do that, something uh, similar on Hoopla. Yeah, that's kind of the way my TBR functions, is to be like my little memory box of, of things that sounded interesting at one time. And sometimes I'll go through and be like, I don't even remember why I thought that sounded cool and take it off. But very often they just stay on there forever. Um, but that's okay. Yeah, so many books, so little time. Yeah. It just it just happens. It doesn't stress me out, though. I know a lot of people get stressed out about it. What about you, Carrie? Sometimes, just because... I, th- I think what stresses me out more is my physical TBR pile, when it's literally a pile of books. <laughs> That's a lot more stressful, because, I guess, because you can actually see it, rather than something... Mm-hmm. Um, an electronic list or even even I have started keeping a physical list on paper um, you know I'll tend to check out five books from the library but I know I'm only going to get to one yeah <laughs> or, that's not really the point right <laughs> <laughs> right how about, how about you Michael Do, does it stress you out uh, a little bit um I know I use Goodreads, and I've been trying to do the – there's a Goodreads challenge. You read so many books in a year, and mm-hmm. I think that's added to it a little bit, um, trying to get through some of them. But not too bad. I do the same thing. I'll check out 10, 15 books and maybe read one or two. Mm-hmm. Um, I also started doing a uh, TBR jar. Oh, um, what's that? So, you'll, so I cut up little strips uh, of paper with the title of the book on it, put it in a jar, you, you know, you're not sure what you want to read, so pull it out. And oh, that's a great idea. There you go. I've done that a little bit. That's helped a little bit. I that think you could, you could probably do that on Goodreads, too, but with, like, a num- random number generator. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That, w- that would work. So how did you guys choose your books for today? Well, I'm definitely a mood reader. Um, so it... And 
you know, kind of luck of the draw. One of the books that I had, I've, I talk about and I'm going to talk about it later, but um, every other time I've tried to read it, it's been checked out. And this mm-hmm. time it, it wasn't. <laughs> so I was able to get it. But um, yeah, the, uh, the two that I have are just have nothing to do with each other. They just have been on my list for a while. Mm-hmm. And glad I finally got to read them. Yeah. Pretty much the same way. I just went kind of went into Goodreads and went down my list and saw a couple that I've been meaning to read for a long time. So mm-hmm. felt like a good opportunity to do that. Yeah. It was kind of similar for me, except I did check out quite a few books and start reading I did the some, same thing. And then was like, nope, this, <laughs> this, I can just take this off my pile. Yeah, and isn't that cathartic? <laughs> it, and you're yeah. like, I don't need to read this. Yeah. That's a beautiful thing. Absolutely. <laughs> All right, well, um, we'll go ahead and get started, and I guess I will kick it off. So the first book I wanted to talk about today is called Get in Trouble, and it's a short story collection by Kelly Link. Get in Trouble has probably been on my TBR list since it was first published in 2015. Link, who co-edits Small Beer Press with her husband, Gavin J. Grant, received a 2018 MacArthur Genius Grant for her work, which includes two short story collections for teens. I'm not sure what took me so long to finally read this well-reviewed Pulitzer finalist book, but Get in Trouble was definitely worth the wait. I first listened to Get in Trouble on audio, and the book's blend of literary fiction, fantasy, and science fiction kind of sneaked up on me. The first story, The Summer People, at first sounds like it's going to be a fairly straightforward literary piece about Fran, a girl in rural North Carolina whose father has knowingly left her alone while she's very sick, still expecting her to ready the summer people's houses for their stays. The story veers into fantasy when, instead of sending her friend Ophelia to the doctor for help, Fran sends her to, quote, the big house with an envelope containing three strands of Fran's hair. Quote, you won't see them, Fran says of the summer people, but they'll know you come from me, unquote. We learn about the summer people slowly, as Ophelia does. They are fairy-like hoarders and makers who, quote, liked things that were shiny. They were like magpies that way, in other ways, too, unquote. Though the summer people sometimes leave for years at a time, Fran can never leave. Quote, whoever takes care of them has to stay here, Fran tells Ophelia. You can't leave. They don't let you, unquote. In Get in Trouble, Link creates multiple alternate universes that blur the line between realism and fantasy. There are life-sized animated doll boyfriends who can operate in real or spectral modes characters with second shadows who grow up into evil twins, superheroes who are just as short on sleep as the rest of us, and spaceships whose inhabitants sleep for years at a time. In the last story, which takes place in the Florida Keys, there are even invasive species of mermaids. Quote, people had brought them from one of the Disney pocket universes as pets, Link writes. And now they were everywhere, small but numerous, in a way that appealed to children and bird watchers. Unquote. 
The stories are often creepy, but darkly humorous, as the previous example shows. And here's a teenage character talking about her frenemy Ainsley in the story New Boyfriend. Quote, Ainsley comes back from her ski trip with a tan because Ainsley is a multitasker. Unquote. <laughs> that oh, one, I think, I made, like that. <laughs> that one made me laugh out loud while I was <laughs> listening to the audiobook. In the audiobook, different characters perform each story, some better than others. Minus points for the narrator who pronounces both Versailles, Kentucky, and St. Augustine, Florida wrong. But I personally enjoyed this book more once I sat down to read it rather than listen to it on my commute. The stories deserve and demand the kind of focused attention that I just can't give while driving. On the page, they became clearer and more complex, funnier, and even more surprising. If you are a fan of Neil Gaiman, George Saunders, or Karen Russell, do yourself a favor and put Get in Trouble at the very top of your TBR list. In honor of the last story's Florida Keys setting, I recommend pairing Get in Trouble with a slice of key lime pie. But not just any key lime pie. Skip the recipes designed for lazy cooks with their condensed milk and gelatin and go straight for my mother's version. It requires the extra work of beating egg yolks, sugar, and key lime juice over a double boiler and then folding in beaten egg whites. But as with reading, the extra work is worth it for a more complex pie that's airy and dense, sweet and tart. And also dairy free. <laughs> that sounds really good. <laughs> it does. My first recommendation is the novella The Ballad of Black Tom by Victor Laval. This is his response to H.P. Lovecraft's The Horror at Red Hook, uh, one of Lovecraft's more overt racist and xenophobic stories. Laval is able to make a brand new story instead of just a blow-by-blow retelling of the original, only using names and places from the original story. It begins in 1924 with Charles Thomas Tester, known as Tommy on the streets of Harlem, an African-American man who lives in Harlem with his ailing father. He's a hustler with no real musical talent who uses his guitar to try to make enough money to get by on by playing the same few chords over and over. One day, Tommy is hired to deliver a little yellow book to a mysterious woman in Flushing Meadows, a more fluent and white area of New York City. A wealthy man, Mr. Soydem, takes notice and introduces him to a brand new world full of sorcery and cosmic terror while being pursued by two uh, Harlem cops. Laval is able to definitely cover many important and still relevant topics, packing a lot into such a short book. He covers police brutality, privilege, class, racism, especially that subtle passive racism. His introduction of the Supreme Alphabet makes a compelling addition to the Cthulhu mythos. I had to look up what the Supreme Alphabet was because I didn't remember being a part of the original Cthulhu mythos. So the Supreme Alphabet was created by the 5% Nation, an offshoot of the Nation of Islam, and assigns a meaning to each letter of the alphabet, giving the story an added dimension as it explores race relations and white and black nationalism. Also, if you're familiar with the Cthulhu mythos and the Elder Gods, you'll see some nods and references to them throughout, and one may even make a brief appearance. I recently read that he plans on continuing the story Black Tom, 
which will take up immediately following the events of this book. So if you've read uh, Lovecraft Country by Matt Ruff or Fledging by Octavia E. Butler or just a fan of Lovecraft's works in general, I would definitely add this to your TBR. Um, so I paired this book with Pineapple Chow in a traditional Trinidadian snack, which is served in the elegant Caribbean Social Club, the Victoria Society that Tommy Tester visits with his father and his best friend Buckeye. I made this. I made it this last weekend, and it's super easy to make. I added a little more hot sauce to give a little more zing, and also let it marinate for about an hour to the 30 the recipe called for to really let the flavors mingle together. So tell us what what is involved with that dish. So it's just chunks of pineapple, um, cilantro, and... Peppers? There was some hot, hot sauce involved. Um, they originally called for culantro, which is a Trinidadian version of cilantro. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's a little difficult. I couldn't <laughs> find it around here, it. so I just, yeah, he's yeah, the general cilantro. Mm-hmm. Um yeah, and you put it in the refrigerator for a little bit, and um, it's a really good snack. So you just eat it on its own, or are you yeah, put like it on top of things? Um, you can um, mostly as a snack. Oh, okay. Yeah, or like a side dish. Uh huh. Sounds good. Yeah, we're we're hitting the tropical uh, dishes up. So yeah. Far. yeah. There you go. <laughs> So my first pick is one that I've wanted to read ever since I first saw the cover a few years ago. Uh, Carrie Brownstein's memoir, Hunger Makes Me a Modern Girl. I'm not sure why I never got around to it, but I finally did, and I'm glad. Um, Brownstein is one-third of the band Slater Kinney, and before I read the book, I knew her better as Fred Armisen's better half on the television show Portlandia. I had never really listened to any of Slater Kinney's music before, so I was really truly just judging the book by its cover, and I'd heard and seen it recommended a few times. Uh, Carrie grew up in Seattle and ended up in Olympia, Washington for college and formed a couple of bands while she was there. Sleater Kinney ended up being the one that took off. Uh, The first half of the book, or, or so, it's a little bit more than the first half, is focused on her childhood, life as a fan of the musicians she eventually joined, and the early days of Slater Kinney. Once the band takes off, things get cool and complicated, but the work never ceases. While I never really listened to Slater Kinney's music before reading it, I don't think it really mattered in my enjoyment of the book. Um, I, I really did like the audiobook version. I think in print form it would be great too, but uh, Brownstein herself does the narration, and having her speaking the words helped everything feel just a little bit more honest, or at least as honest as a person can be when telling their own life's tale. I really like the way she writes about music and experiences and the ways that she describes her songs and the choices they made about different things they did along the way. And that's probably why I didn't really feel like I was missing out on much, even though I'd never heard the songs that she was talking about. I've since listened to them and have a better appreciation of the book as a result, but I don't think you'd need to have one before the other. It's not a terribly happy book, and I'm sure that won't shock most people who know anything about rock, uh, but it does end on a happy note. 
The band was on hiatus for seven years, from 2006 to 2013, but re reunited and released an album right around the time the memoir was released as well. So there's some resolution to be had. If, like me, you know Brownstein from Portlandia, know that she really doesn't talk much about the show, or at all. Um, so don't be disappointed at that. Like That side of her life is not part of this book. It's very much about her time in the band and all the things leading up to it. As for what to pair with the memoir, Brownstein doesn't really talk much about food, uh, but there is a fair amount of drinking. Again, not surprising, I'm sure. Uh, so I think some kind of cheap beer or wine would suit pairing best. Maybe just go grab something absurdly cheap but surprisingly drinkable from Trader Joe's. Don't try too hard. You're just looking for something that will get the job done. And if you want to stay on theme, maybe get something Mexican or <laughs> <laughs> Caribbean. <laughs> just just something to, to get you through. Well, so it's in, I have, I started to listen to this. I probably got about halfway through it. And I am a fan of Slater Kenny, had listened to the music beforehand. Um, but I didn't really care for no. it um, too much. Now, I think part of it may be, I don't, I just haven't often liked uh, audiobooks that were memoirs that I've listened to. Something about them, they often, especially celebrity memoirs, don't really have enough narrative drive, I think, to keep me listening. Mm -hmm. um, and I didn't really care for her the way she read the book either <laughs> so we have a kind of a completely different take on it now i know it's not for everybody i'm sure <laughs> my husband loved the book but he read it um and is also you know a huge music um fan and probably knew all of the people that she was talking about that was another thing that I think at some point it sort of felt like it was a lot of name dropping to me and <laughs> I can see that. And um and I I I tried reading Pat, one of Patty Smith's memoirs too, um or listening to it on audio and kind of had a similar experience where I liked the first part that she was talking about where she was sort of focusing on her relationship with um Robert Mapplethorpe and then it just seemed felt like a list of names, <laughs> and uh, I don't know, couldn't couldn't get through it. Well, that's okay. Yeah, <laughs> different strokes, different folks. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, if you don't have a good audiobook narrator, it's it's tough to get mm -hmm. through it. Definitely. It's not every celebrity or author is is the best at reading their own work. Mm -hmm. I will yeah. say I, I sped it up to like one and a half X. Oh, maybe that would help. That. <laughs> Sometimes speeding it up just a little bit or even a lot <laughs> can really make a difference. Mm -hmm. um, so I, that definitely kept it moving because it's not a very long, it's like no. eight hours, but that takes it down to six hours, which is even <laughs> more doable when you're <laughs> driving 45 minutes one way to work. Um, can knock it out pretty quick, but... Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can I can see what you mean though. But if you if any of those sound good to you, any of those things, <laughs> <laughs> right? <laughs> maybe you should try. Hunger makes me a modern girl. And for sure, I mean the parts that were really interesting to me are you know her talking about being a woman and mm -hmm. being a musician and um, and just how they. Now that I'm thinking about it, how they 
learned how to play and create songs and not having the kind of mentorship that I think is typical of men musicians for sure yeah mm. yeah that definitely like that first half of the book before the band takes off is definitely there's a lot more meat in there Mm -hmm. I think but then you know like trauma happens again and you just kind of got to get through the successful part to get back to the (laughs) to the more interesting things maybe okay well I'll put it on my list to try again someday So I have more mixed feelings about my second read, the classic novel My Antonia by Willa Cather. I had never read Cather before this, and a recent New York Times column by Brett Stevens describing My Antonia as a book for our times renewed my interest in the novel. My Antonia is told from the point of view of Jim Burden looking back on his childhood on the Nebraska Plains. Jim is particularly drawn to a neighbor girl, Antonia Shimerda, whose family recently immigrated from what is now called the Czech Republic. This character-driven, leisurely-paced novel profiles Antonia and her family, as well as other young women immigrants who help support their families by working on their farms, as hired girls, and in other jobs. Cather never sugarcoats the struggle of these new immigrants, describing the harsh living conditions, their homesickness, and even the sexual assault that the hired girls sometimes faced while living outside their own homes. She also portrays the prejudices they faced, as when Jim says to Antonia, quote, people who don't like this country ought to stay at home, unquote. I agree with Brett Stevens that Jim's comment sounds like the kind of thing people say today. However, I couldn't help wondering if Cather's sympathetic views of immigrants would have been different had the neighbors been from Central America or the Middle East rather than Norway or Italy. The racist language the narrator, the narrator uses in the book's lone passage about an African-American suggests that they might have been. And while I appreciated Cather's characterization of Antonia as both a physically and mentally strong woman, Ultimately, Jim's view of Antonia and her family are a bit romanticized and overly simplified, as when he notes that Antonia, quote, was a rich mine of life, like the founders of early races, unquote. Nevertheless, Cather's writing style is spare but descriptive, with beautiful lyrical passages about the landscape. Here's an example from early on in the book, when Jim first moves to Nebraska. Quote, as I looked about me, I felt that the grass was the country, as the water is the sea. The red of the grass made all the great prairie the color of wine stains, or of certain seaweeds, when they are first washed up. And there was so much motion in it, the whole country seemed, somehow, to be running." Unquote. Like so many immigrants, one of the ways Antonia stays connected to her homeland is through cooking. Her family particularly enjoys her plum kolaches, a Czech pastry that is still popular in areas of the United States where Czech immigrants settled, such as Nebraska and Texas. Read more about the history of kolaches and find a recipe on the website toriav.com. We'll link to it on our blog. All 
right, so my second recommendation is the short story collection 20th Century Ghost by Joe Hill. I chose this because um, his book Nosferatu was recently adapted on AMC, and he's got a short story collection called Full Throttle, which is about to come out in a few weeks. Um, and if you don't already know, Joe Hill is the son of the master of horror, Stephen King. Um, the stories in this collection run the gamut. You have heartfelt stories, there's some dark fantasy, science fiction, and then you have some that are just creepy to some that are just completely terrifying. Um, so there are 15 stories in this collection, but I'm only going to touch on several that were my personal favorites. The first, the first story in the collection is called Best New Horror, which follows Eddie Carroll, an editor for America's Best New Horror Anthology, and he tries to track down the author of a particularly horrifying story that he receives in the mail. Then you have Pop Art, which is about an inflatable boy named Art, who's just trying to survive <laughs> adolescence. That's a great title. <laughs> the, the premise might sound a bit odd, but it totally works, and it's probably the crown jewel in this collection. Um, you Will Hear the Locust Sing is a Kafka-esque story that follows Francis, a boy who lives near a nuclear testing site in the desert, as he awakes one day and finds that he is an eight-foot-tall locust. One of my favorites in this whole collection is Abraham's Boys, which is about Van Helsing immigrating to America after the events of Dracula with his sons. And then there's the cape. This story is about a boy who discovers that his lucky blue blanket, which he uses as a cape as a child to pretend to be a superhero, actually gives him the power of flight. The story has also been adapted into a graphic novel back in 2012. Um, there's something here just for about everyone. Um, I didn't find any real filler in this collection, as you find sometimes. All the stories were really good, but several really stood out as gems like Pop Art and Abraham's Boys. Um, and back in 2005, it won the it, back in 2005 it won the Bram Stoker Award for Best Fiction Collection. So with Joe Hill being a native of New England, I decided to pair this book with a New England staple and a recipe I've always wanted to try, the Fluff and Nutter Sandwich, <laughs> which is comprised of marshmallow fluff or marshmallow cream and peanut butter between two pieces of bread. Wait, you'd never, you'd never had that before? I've never had that. <laughs> You're from where? Alabama. <laughs> I didn't know that was a New England thing. I didn't either. I've, I've been to Boston a couple of times, and yeah, I heard about it. I've never heard it before. <laughs> is that like a thing around here too? I, don't I feel like it's a thing everywhere. I, yeah, that's what really? I thought. Yeah. I well, don't know. I, I found it said apparently it was supposed it was proposed to be the official sandwich of Massachusetts, uh. but it's languishing in you know Massachusetts assembly right now. <laughs> oh, um, okay. But, yeah, I tried it the other night and it was. It's a lot. Really good. It's, <laughs> <laughs> I used toasted bread, which was I gave it. Which I liked a little bit more, but uh-huh. yeah, it was uh, it was a revelation for me. <laughs> <laughs> so now we know what to look for in Michael's lunchbox <laughs> from now on. I might have it in the fridge today. <laughs> <laughs> So my second book is another one that I've been wanting to read for a while. But like I said, every time I try to check it out in the past, someone else had it. Ebook, physical book, audiobook, didn't matter. Always checked out. Every format. 
Um, but like I said, I was finally able to get a copy, and um, it is The Air Affair by Jasper Ford. I've seen it recommended widely, especially for bibliophiles and especially for Anglophile bibliophiles. Um, but from what I've seen on Goodreads, it is definitely not a book for everyone, apparently. Um, I really liked it, but as you can guess from the title, the book has something to do with Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte, but it is about quite a lot more than that. It's kind of hard to sum up quickly, but to simplify quite a lot, uh, the book's main character is Thursday Next, who is essentially a detective who specializes in literary crime, and the book is set in an alternate universe, England, that has been at war with Russia in Crimea, in Crimea for the past 131 years. There's also time travel and magic of a sort and other kinds of literary ridiculousness. For example, there's a group of people so dedicated to the theory that Francis Bacon wrote Shakespeare's plays that they go door to door trying to convince others to join the movement. They're called the Baconians. Anyway, it's a very silly book. I've seen it compared to Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and it reminded me of several books, including the Invisible Library series and some of the meta elements of The Seven and a Half Deaths of Evelyn Hardcastle. The plot follows Thursday as she tries to navigate PTSD, institutional bureaucracy, and chase down a villain who's the definition of chaotic evil while also being campy. Uh, I was really glad I was finally able to read it, uh, and I'm looking forward to reading the sequel. I think there's six, there's f maybe five published and another one coming out, um, and I'm looking forward to reading the sequel whenever I'm again in the mood for something a little oddball. As for pairings, Thursday orders a Vorpal special at her hotel bar when she arrives back in Swindon for the first time in several years. A Vorpal special is apparently one of the many literary references that I missed throughout the book. I didn't even know I was missing them. Um, but <laughs> once I looked up a Vor Vorpal special, uh, it alludes to the Vorpal sword mentioned by Lewis Carroll in his poem Jabberwocky. No one really knows what a Vorpal sword is, but the context seems to suggest that it is quite deadly. There is a cocktail that originally appeared in the Savoy Cocktail Book in 1930 called the Jabberwock. It combines dry sherry, dry gin, and caparatif in equal parts. I didn't have any sherry on hand to make it myself, but it does sound like it's both a stiff drink and supremely English, so perfect for Thursday Next and her adventures. Cool. It's interesting that it was checked out in all formats, but the Goodreads reviews are mixed. Yeah, I don't know what that's about. I... It has, like, a ridiculous amount of Goodreads reviews. I think over 100,000. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, like, yeah, it, I think it is a polarizing book. Um, so, like, if you're not into camp or silliness, mm -hmm. it's not going to be for you. I think maybe some people come to it because they love Jane Eyre, and then it's not, mm -hmm. you know, perhaps what they're looking for. But mm -hmm. I don't know. I hadn't, I've, I've only read Jane Eyre once in high school, so I wasn't really in it for that, but it was fun. Mm -hmm. I enjoyed it. Yeah, sounds like it. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks for listening to the Books and Bites podcast. 
We produce this podcast in the recording studio at the Jessamine County Public Library. For links to the books and recipes we talked about today, or to sign up for our Books and Bites newsletter, visit our website at jesspublib.org forward slash books hyphen bites. Our theme song is The Breakers by Scott Whitten from his album In Close Quarters with the Enemy. You can find out more about Scott and his music on his website, adoreforadesk.com.